in the United States where Dr. E. Michael Jones is, is uh, coming from, it's, I think it's around 8, 8.45 or something like that. It's, it's still morning. So he's from South Bend, Indiana. So he's our guest for today. Um, Dr. Jones is the founder of uh, Culture Wars magazine. He used to be a lecturer at a college called St. Mary's, St. Mary's College. And he left, he since left uh, and started dedicating his time to, to writing. And, and, and uh, that's where Culture Wars magazine came from. He's, uh, I think I could say he's a journalist and, uh, and uh, his uh, main topic, which is going to be the keynote address for today's forum. Uh, the topic that I would say he is very dear to his heart is uh, the, the logos in history and the history of logos. So um, I first met Dr. Jones, I think two years ago, he came to the school where I teach he gave a speech to the students. I would call it a lecture. Uh, and then after that, we have been in correspondence with him ever since. So today he's going to talk to us about, uh, let me just say for now two topics, but rolled into one. So the first topic, which is what has been in the flyer for the UNIV that has been sent to, I think all the participants here. The first topic is about the modern university, the decline of the modern university. And in particular, uh, he's going to address this topic of uh, students flying out. I would call it brain drain. The best of the students we have in high schools, they go to the, they fly out, they go to the UK or to the US. And then maybe they never ask themselves about the moral climate of the universities they're going to. So he's going to talk to us about the moral bankruptcy of these universities and whether it is worth going there for African students in particular. Uh, yeah, so that's one topic, the decline of the modern university. Then there's another topic, which is, uh, I would say, subservient to this one, which is the logos in the service of, uh, no, let me put it in a better way. The second topic is uh, language as a vehicle of the logos. How do we understand this idea of logos vis-a-vis -vis language? And in particular, I thought it would be good if he talks about Kenya, Tanzania, and the Swahili language. He has been to Kenya uh, twice, I think now, uh, and Tanzania as well. He's even written a book on Nyerere. So uh, without any more information from me, I think I would like to hand over the mic to uh, E. Michael Jones himself. So uh, Karibu Sana, Dr. Jones. Karibu Sana. Thank you, Bob. Okay. Uh, it's good to be here virtually. It would be better if I were there actually, but uh, we can't do that anymore. So we'll make the best of this uh, situation. Uh, after I received your, the, the topics that you discussed, I came up with a formulation of uh, the issue on my own. And uh, this is the way I would formulate the combination of those two topics that you described. It's a question, is the university the vehicle of Logos in human history? Now, uh, before I can answer that question, we have to talk about what is logos. Logos is the Greek word for word, speech, rationality, and ultimately the order of the universe. Beginning in the eighth century BC, people all over the world began to move away from mythology to a, a, 
more rational understanding of the universe. In China, Confucius came up with the idea of Tao. In India, the Vedas spoke of Urta. And in Greece, a group of physiologoi, or what we would call physicists, came up with the idea of an element which was the ultimate reality. Thales said it was water. Anaxagoras said it was air. And Heraclitus said it was fire. But what did they mean by that? What did Heraclitus mean by fire? He meant what we would call energy, which was a form of motion, which was always changing and yet always the same. If you think of a candle flame or his famous statement about the river, uh, you can never step into the same river twice. Uh, it's always changing and it's always the same. The name he gave to that state was Logos. The term was significant because it was the first time that ultimate reality was expressed as something other than a material substance. The Greeks reached a level of abstraction that occurred nowhere else in the world. Because they lacked both the microscope and the telescope, the Greek attempt to study nature to find ultimate reality failed. The Greek philosophers then decided to deal with more immediate human concerns like winning lawsuits. And this led to the rise of the sophist who said that man was the measure of all things. Thrasymachus said that justice was the opinion of the powerful, which got him into an argument with Socrates, who believed so strongly that there was a human dimension to Logos that he was willing to die for his belief. Socrates' pupil Plato continued that tradition by reintroducing Logos to the universe. Form, or what he called eidos, was now the ultimate reality. The soul was a form. Plato felt that the human soul was what we would call an angel which inhabited a machine or a pre-existent soul which got infused into matter, thereby giving it life. When Plato's student Aristotle asked where those forms existed, he got no answer. Aristotle didn't abandon the idea of form, but he refined it by saying that the form was part of the thing itself. The soul wasn't a pre-existing angel. It was the form of the body in a much more intimate way known as intellecti, which came into being with the thing itself as its goal or telos to use the Greek word. So the soul was to the body what seeing was to the eye. It was its first act. It was its essence. Form is a purely intellectual concept. It is not water, air, or fire, or anything else material. It is a manifestation of logos, which is the rationality of the universe. It was also a manifestation of God. But this is where problems began. God had to be transcendent, otherwise he was not God. Aristotle's God was known as the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover, which was certainly transcendent, but because of its transcendence, this God had no connection with the world of time. And if it had no connection with the world of time, it had no connection to creatures like us who lived in time. So who cares about this God? Well, no one, because he doesn't care about us. Plato tried to resolve this problem by positing a demi-orgos, or worker of the people who acted in time and therefore was concerned about man. But the very fact that the demi-orgos worked in time meant that he had lost his transcendence 
which meant that he wasn't really God, even if his heart was in the right place. Confronted with a dilemma which they could not resolve, the Greeks abandoned philosophy and eventually replaced it with magic via Neoplatonism. Plotinus was a philosopher, but Iamblichus was a magician. No man could resolve this issue, only God could. And that's precisely what happened when Jesus Christ arrived on this earth as the Jewish Messiah. The answer to the Greek dilemma was the Trinity, a concept that the Catholic Church would need three contentious centuries to resolve. And the only way they could resolve it was by recourse to Logos, which is shorthand in this instance for Greek philosophy. The early church reached a crisis when Paul was expelled from the synagogue. At that moment, Paul had a dream of a Greek beckoning to him from across the Aegean Sea. Paul could speak Greek. Peter could not. Paul became, as a result, the church's ambassador to the Gentiles, while Peter stayed in Jerusalem. When he arrived in Athens, Paul spoke at the Areopagus, which was a philosophical society, but he gave the wrong speech. Paul gave the Ephesus speech against idols and idol worshipers to a group of Greek philosophers who understood Logos and Greek philosophy. When Paul said that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the philosophers walked out and it took another 500 years before the church was established in Athens. St. John knew that Paul had failed. St. John was also living in Ephesus at the time, along with the Blessed Mother. Uh, Ephesus was, as I said, a center of idol worship. The whole economy was based on creating little silver statues of Diana. And when Christianity arrived, that whole economy was threatened and there was big conflict there and Paul was familiar with it. St. John knew that, as I said, that Paul had failed. There was no point in writing another synoptic gospel beginning with a Hebrew genealogy full of names the Greeks had never heard of. So St. John began his gospel with a short treatise in metaphysics because he knew that would resonate with people who spoke Greek and were familiar with the concept of Greek philosophy. St. John began his gospel with the quintessentially Greek word that went to the heart of the quintessentially Greek project when he wrote, En arche en halogos. In the beginning was the word. That's the way we translate it in the Bible. But I'm going to say, in the beginning, there was Logos. Because the word word, it makes this statement completely incomprehensible. This, there's no difference between uh, this uh, English and other in, uh, European languages, uh, or Latin for that matter. In principio erat verbum is the Latin word. It's the same word as word. Am Anfang war das Wort, it's the same thing in German. Greek is the only language that has the richness, uh, the philosophical richness that goes with the word Logos. So, in the beginning there was Logos, Kai Logos ein Protheon, and the word was with God. Kai Logos ein Theos, and Logos was God. As I said, we have to use the word logos here because the English word word simply does not convey enough meaning. And as a result, 
one of the most important passages in the history of Christianity and the world it seeks to convert remains essentially mysterious. The prologue to St. John's Gospel means that in some sense we all have to become Greeks to have a full understanding of what it means to be a Christian. This is the implicit message of the Gospel of St. John. Logos is God. Logos is a person, an agent, and not just any agent. He is the all-powerful agent whose word becomes reality the moment it is spoken. Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate, and this resolves the Greek imminence transcendence dilemma. God the Father is the uncaused cause and unmoved mover of Aristotle, and God the Son is the demiurgos of Plato. The divine trinity is both completely transcendent in its power and at the same time intimately involved in both the action of the universe through secondary causality, as Aquinas would point out, and the lives of men. At this point, the church replaced the Platonic Academy in Athens as the vehicle of Logos in human history. It took another three centuries to hammer out the doctrine of the Trinity, a struggle which came down to the difference between two Greek words, which differed by one letter, homoousion, one in being with, with, one in being with God, or homoousion, the heretical Aryan formula, which meant like in being with God. Within roughly half a century of that great intellectual breakthrough, the Roman Empire collapsed and was overrun by my barbaric German ancestors. Their favorite occupation was not disputation in Greek, but rather chasing pigs through the forest. The response of the church at this moment in history was not the university, because the Germans were incapable of the level of abstract thought which was necessary for university studies at this point. The response of the church was the monastery and the rule of St. Benedict. The motto of the Benedictine order was ora et labora, pray and work. Work in this instance could mean copying ancient manuscripts, but by and large, it meant agriculture. A Roman senator who had been assigned to the Danube frontier once said that the Germans were the saddest people on the face of the earth because they had neither olives nor grapes. Well, they still don't have olives, but they do have grapes and they take the grapes and they make wine and wine makes you happy. So they are now happy. I know this because I rode down the Danube with a group of Germans in 2001. And on that trip, we passed one monastery after another surrounded by either vineyards or fruit orchards. And this brings us to Africa. What is the difference between Germany and Tanzania? Let's be more specific. What's the difference between the Diocese of Würzburg in Germany and the Diocese of Mbinga in Tanzania? I happen to know the difference because the Diocese of Würzburg set up a coffee cooperative in Mbinga and I read their brochure. So on the one page, we read that the Diocese of Mbinga was founded in 1987, 
And on the other page, we read that the Diocese of Würzburg was founded in, who can guess? It was founded in 737, over a millennium before. So what's the difference between Germany and Africa? The answer is 1,000 years of Christianity. During that millennium, Germans followed the principle of ora et labora, and they learned how to pray, but more importantly, at least for our purposes, they learned how to work. Germany now has one of the most skilled and sophisticated labor forces in the world. If you don't believe me, buy a BMW. This is significant because labor is the source of all value. Because Germans know how to mobilize labor, they are rich. Because Africans do not know how to mobilize labor, they are poor. What has been the biggest obstacle to organizing labor in Africa? The answer is polygamy. Why do I say this? Because I wrote a biography of Julius Nyerere, the Catholic who was the first president of Tanzania. Julius Nyerere had one wife because he was a Catholic. Nyerere's father had 17 wives. Nyerere's brother had eight wives. When Nyerere asked his brother why he had so many wives, his brother said, I need them to work on the farm. At that point, Nyerere said, buy a tractor. And in that anecdote, we can see the tragedy of economic development in Africa during the 20th century. What is the missing link between polygamy and tractors? The answer is logos. Why do I say that? When I was at the Nereri compound outside Musoma, I saw a Toyota Land Cruiser flying Tanzanian flags pull up in front of Nereri's house. The man who stepped out of the car was the governor of the Mara state. He was shocked when this Mzungu walked up to him and said, the pump in Kamuga is broken. Kamuga is an, is, was an Ujamaa village, which is to say a model socialist town. But it wasn't Africans or socialists who installed the pump there. It was Marinol priests from America who arrived there in the 1950s full of mechanical skills they didn't know they had. One of those skills was installing pumps. I actually met the man uh, when I went to Marinol headquarters uh, in New York when I was doing research for the Nairari book. It, it turns out that the man who built, the, built that pump, Father Willie, is still there. He's in the nursing home. He's 90. He was 94 years old at the time. And I, they inter took us to his room. I walked into the room and I said the same thing I said to the governor of the Mara state. I said, the pump in Kamuga is broken. And he said, well, if I were there, I'd fix it. Well, he's not there and the pump's still broken. Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons uh, is Julius Nerera. In the late 1960s, Julius Nerera, who was going to speak at the United Nations, uh, which was not far from Marinal headquarters in New York, went to Marinal headquarters and told the priests and nuns who had created the infrastructure that I just mentioned, the pumps and so on and so forth in the villages, Nereri said he didn't need them anymore. And furthermore, he told them that if they wanted to live in Tanzania, 
they had to live according to the principles of Ujamaa socialism, which meant practically that they would have to spend hours each day foraging for firewood and then walking to a muddy puddle full of Bilharzia to obtain water. A Polish priest I met in Tanzania once told me, there's only one thing worse than socialism, and that is African socialism. If there's one thing worse than African socialism, it's Ujamaa socialism. If you want the details of that story, I recommend my book, The Broken Pump in Tanzania, which is available at culturewars.com. So imagine, if you will, what Germany would look like today if the Benedictines had abandoned their monasteries in 787, which is to say 30 years after they arrived on the Danube. And you have some explanation of why Africa is poor. Africa is poor because it never learned how to mobilize labor properly. And it never learned that skill because women and children the fruits of polygamy provided the bulk of the workforce. Things have gotten worse since Nereri's day. Silvano Barroso, who also teaches at the school where Bob teaches, told me that when he arrived in Nairobi in the 1960s, he had to buy a custom-made shirt and a custom-made suit because all clothing was made from native materials like cotton and wool, and no clothing was imported. Today, the exact opposite is the case. Today, there is not one cotton seed in the Diocese of Bungoma. I mention this because I met the chancellor of the Diocese of Bungoma, who told me that his father had put him through school and seminary by growing cotton. There is no cotton there. The reason there is no cotton seed in Bungoma, there's one reason for that, and the reason is Mutumba or used clothing. Mutumba has destroyed the domestic economy of Eastern Africa. When the legislators of that region awoke to that fact, they put tariffs on Mutumba. And when they did that, the Jewish rag pickers from New Jersey who control the Mutumba trade complained to Mr. Manukin, the Jew who ran the US Treasury at that time. And he threatened them with sanctions and they backed down. But wait a minute, what does this have to do with the university and Logos? By the 13th century, Logos had developed so far in Europe that the church needed to dedicate an institution to promoting it. The name of that institution was the university. One of the greatest universities at that time was the University of Paris. And one of the greatest thinkers at that university was St. Thomas Aquinas who perfected the thinking of Aristotle by reading the writings of the Islamic scholar Ibn Rushd. Averroes, to give his Latin name, was confronted with a contradiction, a contradiction he could not solve because Aristotle said that the world was eternal and the Quran said it was created in time. Averroes solved that dilemma by saying that both propositions were true even though they contradicted each other. And that was a decision which put an end to the development of Logos in the Islamic world. C.J. Abrabant, one of Averroes' disciples at the University of Paris, adopted this idea, 
which became known as Averroism or the Doctrine of Two Truths. And in doing so, he provoked a rare outburst of anger from Thomas Aquinas, who referred to him as a stultus, or what we would call an idiot. Aquinas refuted C.J. by writing an opusculum called De Eternitate Mundi Contra Murmurantes, which explained that even if the world were eternal, as Aristotle claimed then and no one claims now, it would still have to come into being. And it could not bring itself into, be, into existence by itself because to do that, it would have to exist before it existed, which is impossible. Stanley Yaki, the Hungarian Benedictine priest and historian of science claims that modern science came into existence in 1277 when Bishop Etienne Tampier of Paris condemned Averroism. He also happened to condemn Aquinas as well, but that was lifted by Al the efforts of Albert the Great uh, a few years later. Science emerged gradually from philosophy as figures like Albert the Great, Aquinas's mentor, devoted more and more of their energy to understanding the natural world. Just as an aside here, uh, in, in uh, the city of God, uh, St. Augustine talks about how salamanders live in fire. Salamanders do not live in fire. But for a thousand years, people simply accepted that statement uh, because uh, Augustine was an authority, because Christianity had taken over the this civilized world up there in Europe, and because Christianity was so powerful that we it needed a, a millennium to understand it. So nobody bothered to ask, well, do salamanders really live in fire? Uh, why did people say that? Well, uh, because salamanders live in logs and uh, people would take uh, logs and they'd throw them on the fire. And as soon as it got hot, the salamander didn't like it and he'd jump out and run, try and get out of the fire. That's why they said that uh, about a millennium later, they figured out that it was wrong. I'm pointing this out because uh, this is how science developed uh, with people like Albert the Great. This is the matrix, the matrix of science was the church. And it was church uh, institutions like the University of Paris that allowed science to develop. Science did not develop in the Islamic world because of the, the problem I just mentioned. Science was clearly seen as a subset of Logos at this time, which is to say the 13th century. But over the next few centuries, it became a substitute for Logos under people like Descartes, and eventually became the antithesis of Logos, which is where we find ourselves today. Classic example of what I'm talking about is the irrational COVID regulations which are now being used as a form of totalitarian social control and a weapon to destroy representative government. And I would add probably the Catholic church as well. They are also, these COVID regulations are also being used as an excuse to remove incalcitrant politicians like the late president Magafuli of Tanzania from office. Whenever those politicians represent the will of their people and not the demands of big pharma. The crucial link between then and now, then being the 13th century and now 
is William of Ockham, the British Franciscan who was a nominalist. Ockham said that all categories were categories of the mind and in doing so introduced the Islamic God of pure will into European culture. William of Ockham's most famous pupil was Martin Luther, who said that reason was a whore. The religious wars of the Reformation led to the truncated logos of the Enlightenment, which led to the French Revolution, which led to a series of revolutions throughout the 19th century, which culminated in the Russian Revolution of 1917, which gave the world communism. Following the revolution of 1848, the Catholic Church realized that it had lost control of the university. After losing one intellectual battle after another, the church under Pope Pius IX issued the encyclical against modernism and founded a magazine known as Civilta Cattolica to fight all contemporary examples of revolutionary thought by returning to Thomism the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas as the metaphysically sound basis of all Catholic thought. One of the editors of that magazine was Vincenzo Joaquino Raphael Luigi Pecci, who eventually became Pope Leo XIII, who issued the encyclical Eterni Patris in 1879, making Thomism the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. One of the first places this new strain of Thomism got implemented was France. And two of its greatest proponents were Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain, both of whom ended up in America. Although neither man ended up on the faculty there, both men had an enormous influence at the University of Notre Dame, which made Thomism the official philosophy of that university in 1953. As a result, Notre Dame University became the cutting edge of Logos in the new world <clears throat> under the leadership of people like Ralph McInerney, who became head of both the Maritime Institute and the Medieval Studies Department there. If you were hoping that this story had a happy ending, it does because God is in control of human history. But the story of Logos did not have a happy ending at Notre Dame University or at any other university in the United States or any other university in the world. Logos got strangled in its cradle at Notre Dame University by two wicked men, Erna McMullen and Theodore Hesburgh less than 20 years after it had been enshrined as the university's official philosophy. The details are available in my book, Logos Rising, a history of ultimate reality and praise the Lord, a copy of it finally landed in Nairobi and Bob Odera has one. So hold it up to show the people. By the time I arrived, <clears throat> as a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College across the street from Notre Dame in 1979, Logos had become a career liability. I found that out the hard way when I got fired one year after I arrived there at what called itself a Catholic university 
because of my opposition to abortion. At that time, I thought getting fired was a catastrophe because I had moved my family out of out there from Philadelphia and had bought a house. And now I had no job. Lord, I prayed at the time, why did you lead us out of Egypt only to perish in the wilderness? I now see that getting fired was a blessing in disguise because it allowed me to get out of academe at just the right moment. It allowed me to found a magazine and the magazine allowed me to write books like Logos Rising of the sort that I've been writing now for 40 years. We celebrate the 40th anniversary of the founding of the magazine this coming December. So now I can say to my former colleagues what Joseph said to his brothers when they came starving to Egypt for grain. The evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. The book Logos Rising is divided into two parts. The first part is the history of Logos and the second part is the Logos of history. If there's one sentence that epitomizes the Logos of history, which means the movement of God in human history, is, it is that sentence that I just quoted from Joseph. The evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. God is always turning evil into good. That is the purpose of evil. It's the only reason God allows evil. And Hegel, uh, who also figures prominently in Logos Rising, the German philosopher, came up with a term called the cunning of reason, die List der Vernunft. That's his description of the movement of Logos in history. And it's the key to understanding what's happening today. If discussing Logos was dangerous 40 years ago at the university, it's impossible now, at least at universities in the West, which is where many Africans go to get their degrees. A few years ago, I met one of those students, one of those African students, who happened to be a nun from Kenya who came to Notre Dame to study theology and was puzzled to see all of those rainbow flags on campus and shocked when I explained that they were the banner of the homosexual movement, which had now taken over the university, becoming its de facto operating system. Our naive African nun found this hard to believe until she was asked to write a paper on gender and turned to me for help. When I asked her, if she felt that human sexuality was a social construct with no basis in biology and no moral significance, she said no. She didn't believe that. When I asked her what she did believe, she cited the passage in Genesis which stated, male and female, he created them. Male and female, God created them. So it was a category of reality and not a category of the mind. When she wrote a paper expressing those views, the professor who happened to be a Holy Cross priest was so outraged at such a flagrant violation of the norms of gender ideology, which were the true constitution of Notre Dame University, that he refused to grade the paper. 
adding insult to injury, he said she was too stupid to write something like this on her own. If you go to even what calls itself a Catholic university in Europe or America, this sort of abuse is what you can expect if you defend Logos, even something as basic as the Logos of human sexuality. The University of Notre Dame is doing everything within its power to undermine the faith of this nun and turn her into an apostle of feminism and gender ideology so that she can be sent back to Kenya to undermine the faith of her students. According to the plan prepared for them by Bill Gates and other oligarchs, these young Kenyans will go to university to learn that they should act like homosexuals, even if they are not homosexuals. And that means that they should not have children, thereby posing no threat to the American empire's desire to loot Africa for its natural resources. So what is the answer? Is a university education which thwarts Logos worth the money? Is it worth going into debt to get a degree? No, it's not. The university is no longer the vehicle of Logos in human history. The university is in fact the vehicle of anti-Logos and as such something to be avoided. Uh, there's numerous proof of this, but just recently I, uh, in the next issue of Culture Wars, I reviewed a book by a man professor at the University of Arizona and the title of the book is The Reign of Anti-Logos. What is he talking about? Anti-Logos, he's talking about the university in America at this moment in time. Does that mean that Logos is no longer part of human history? No, of course not. Logos is like the moon. It is always there, even if sometimes we can't see it. You can't see it at the university anymore. It was on its last legs at the university when I arrived at Notre Dame 42 years ago. It was never part of the curriculum at state universities. Now, if you go to Notre Dame or any state university, you will learn the thought of Michel Foucault or Antonio Gramsci or Jacques Derrida or their Epigoni, all of whom are apostles of anti-Logos. That's the bad news. The good news is that Logos is rising. The good news is that we are persecuted, but not abandoned. St. Paul said that, and on my first trip to Kenya almost 20 years ago, a group of students gave me a wooden plaque with precisely those words written on it. The good news is that when I am weak, I am strong. That was St. Paul as well. Ralph McInerney had that phrase or put on his a screensaver on one of his computers. 10 years ago, I was having lunch on Notre Dame's campus when Dave Solomon told me that Ralph was not doing well. He was recovering from a cancer operation in the Holy Cross nursing home across the street. Dave said Ralph wanted to see me, but added that I shouldn't stay too long because Ralph was still weak from chemotherapy. Three hours after I arrived, Ralph was still going strong, reminiscing about his days, not at Notre Dame, but as a successful novelist in the New York publishing world. Then he stopped and asked me how I was doing. I had just written The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, 
which put me in contact with the third rail of American culture life, cultural life, otherwise known as the Jew taboo. Fidelity Press was on the ropes, about to go out of existence, and I was facing failure as a publisher and writer as the culmination of my failure as a professor 30 years before. At this point in our conversation, Ralph asked me how much money I needed to survive. When I told him, he wrote the check that saved Fidelity Press, which allowed me to go on to write Logos Rising, which allows me to claim that in some sense, I am the vehicle of Logos at this moment in history. Because in giving me the money I needed to survive, Ralph, who was the last man in the last ditch at Notre Dame, also draped the mantle of Thomism over my shoulders before he died, less than a month later. And I only am escaped to tell thee, is what Ishmael said in Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick, which I used to teach when I was a professor of American literature. Because you are listening to this talk, you too are now on the cutting edge of Logos in our day. To the skeptics out there who think this is a preposterous claim, I say, read Logos Rising. And after you've finished reading it, name one university where you could learn anything remotely similar to what is in this book or what I have said in this talk. Logos is rising in Africa. The fact that I can speak to you, but at no other university in the West means that Africa to the extent that it has resisted gender ideology and preserved the Catholic faith is now the cutting edge of Logos in human history. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Jones. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a 101 questions on my end, but I would like to give the chance to the participants to ask their questions. So okay. feel free, raise your hand. I think you can unmute yourself and if you can't, I will try and do it from my end. Okay, go ahead. So anyone raise your hand and then you ask your questions. Don't be shy. Okay, let me start then so that uh, can set the ball rolling for the Q&A session. I have a question. Ah, great. Okay. Who is uh, speaking? Alfred. Alfred Kibowen. Uh, by the way, yes. you are in the US, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it would be okay to show your camera. I don't think it's okay. too much well, to ask. Um, I'm wearing my mask right now, but I think I can't. <laughs> Take your mask off. <laughs> for God's sake, what is this? Take your mask off. <laughs> You won't, um, you won't catch anything from me. It's okay, not gonna, COVID will not pass over there. Um, give me a second. Um, so um, my, the question is the following, and I, I think you can already like kind of sense it. But what, what should, um, maybe I shouldn't even ask this question, but I think I'll ask it. Um, what of the students who are already engaged in the paradigm, you know, in the sense of what of the students who are already, like me, like Bob has mentioned, sort of thing, who are already immersed in the, in the whole, 
in the culture. You know, I'm I'm in an American university, and 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 a lot of the things you mentioned are, are true. You know, in the sense of it's very antithetical to the to the to the philosophy and the theology I I grew up in. You know, right. So, and there's only so many ways you can go against the system without. That's right. Without You're being abs- a complete outcast. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So. I, I, I have been faced with this situation myself. Uh, I have five children and uh, four of them went to uh, uh, university, okay? And the oldest uh, went to Harvard. And when uh, he went to Harvard, I took him there and I stood on the bridge over the river there and I said, take the gold and silver out of Egypt. I, th- I guess that's the, the lesson that you have to learn here. So how do you take the gold and silver out of Egypt? Okay, do not major in women's studies, okay? Don't do it, okay? Don't major in gender studies. Don't major, pretty much the entire liberal arts, what's left of it is a disaster, so don't don't go near it. What is possible? Uh, What is possible is a study of language to get back to the principle here, which is logos is language. And one of the best things to study is uh, ancient languages, Latin and Greek, because they're very important. And you also get smarter by studying them because you get uh, experience in grammar. And you're also surrounded by serious students. Needless to say, the, the party boys at the fraternity are not going to be studying ancient Greek. So you don't have to deal with them. Now, that is, from my perspective, from the perspective of the liberal arts, a viable solution at the university. And I think my, my children profited uh, by, by doing that. Certainly, Sarah, my daughter, Sarah, who majored in classics at uh, Indiana University, did, did very well uh, by doing that. Uh, so that's a possibility. The other possibility is the technical stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I can't... I, I, it, Okay, to a certain extent, the attack on Logos is going to affect science as well. The fact of the matter is that, as I said, COVID is a covert form of psychological warfare using science as the cover. And you're going to have to deal with that in the scientific field. So that's it. So, So the point is, if you can go to college without incurring massive debt, uh, and study classics, good. Take the gold and silver out of Egypt. Do not burden yourself with debt. That is the biggest problem. There's a huge problem right now with the people who are in their 20s, uh, let's say th- that generation of people, 30s, uh, and it's student loan debt. They're crushed by student loan debt. There are people who are saying, I've paid uh, for 10 years and now I owe, I owe more than I owned at the, owed at the beginning. I'll never get out of this debt. This is why usury is a sin. And this is why I wrote the book, Baron Metal, uh, uh, The History of Capitalism as a Conflict Between Labor and Usury. So if you have to go into debt, don't do it. And then the question is, well, what should I do? Well, the point is that people uh, have always gotten, there's a group of people who are excluded from the university, like my, my generation, and they went into computers and they became famous and rich simply by going building computers. So there's always going to be something. Which brings me to Kenya, uh, two projects in particular. The Matumba project. Mm-hmm. 
I went, I talked there to the business school at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa and said, look, Matumba is crushing the economy. You have Catholic schools, however, that have to have Catholic school uniforms. You can't buy that on the Matumba market. If we could start having those Catholic uniforms made with native materials like cotton and wool, uh, wool from Eldoret or something like that. And one school I visited in, uh, I think yeah, it was in Bungoma, had 2000 students. That's one school in, in one diocese. And that means uh, at least 4,000 shirts, 4,000 pairs of pants, and so on and so forth. So that's enough to get the thing started. And uh, Father John agreed with me and called me up and said, well, we're ready to plant cotton because his father planted cotton. Well, wait a minute. We've got a lot of mobilization of labor that has to take place before we can launch this, this project. And that's precisely the type of project that I think people should, should consider. Uh, the other project is water, and that's that's a big issue too. But instead of uh, the church, the church should be allowing people to participate directly in these projects without having to go through the the filter of a university where you're not going to learn the stuff that I talked about today anyway. So these are the options that I think are possible. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, before the person in the red room uh, asks a question, uh, let me just ask based on what Alfred asked uh, a while back. Um, you started us off, Dr. Jones, with, uh, uh, I would say, very heavy and, and dense philosophy and theology. I don't know if people caught the details. Uh, maybe they don't need to, but what would you recommend as a way of self-education from among the people who are here? Where would they start? Because there's just so much to cover. Uh, and uh, then, yeah, maybe related to that is, as far as St. Thomas Aquinas is concerned, what did he do to be somehow immune from, he looks like he was immune from error or from, from so many pitfalls which people fall into. Maybe the, the answer could be somewhere along those lines as well. Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. I have a two-word answer to it. It's Logos Rising. Read that book and you will get the education. Do you have a copy there? Can you hold up a copy? Do you have a copy or if you don't, that's okay. I don't but have it yet. Bob, Bob, Bob has a copy. It is possible. There it is. It's actually it really exists. I'm not kidding. It, it's a beautiful cover. If you read this, you will get the, the education in philosophy that you will never get at the university anymore. You can't get it anymore. The only access to that is this book. I mean, I, I don't want to, beat my own drum here, but why did God create me? He created me to write this book because he knew there was going to be a crisis at this point. Okay. Now to get to Aquinas, Aquinas uh, basically uh, perfected Aristotle. It was one of the greatest achievements uh, in history, in the history of the world, in the history of the intellectual life. And it happened in Paris at the high point of the university, which was founded by the Catholic church to promote Logos. It's that simple. The great achievement, there's so many things we could talk about, but he, he united faith and reason. There is, which is, I had the faith in uh, reason. And I had faith in reason because Aquinas united them. And there's no disjunction here. That doesn't mean that we don't need faith. We do need faith because of where we are in this world. 
where we can see sort of maybe three feet in front of us when it comes to history and when it comes to the future, we can't see anything. We can predict something, but you can't see anything. And you're forever in this life going through periods like the one that's described in the gospel where the, the, the uh, disciples are on a boat and there's a storm and Jesus Christ is asleep in the back of the boat. Life is full of moments. We're going through a moment like that right now. Okay, where I, I don't see a way out of this. I'm sorry, I don't see a way out. And when you don't see a way out, you have to act by faith because you can't see. Faith is in things unseen. I had to act by faith when uh, uh, I was fired at St. Mary's. For a year, I didn't know what my future was going to be. So I'm trying to say you need both. And Aquinas is the man who uh, synthesized both. And that was what enabled science to take place. And as I said in the talk, science then took on a life of its own to be the antithesis of Logos. And that's the problem we have to face up to today. Uh, Red Room person, whoever it is, please ask a question. Uh, and then... It was, it was I, <laughs> just Okay, fine, go ahead. Uh, Dr. Jones, it's a pleasure to, to see you, to, to meet you virtually. Uh, I've really enjoyed this talk. Um, so I'm Jotham. I teach philosophy in Strathmore University, and uh, I teach specifically metaphysics. That's what I usually teach. Well, God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. This, Thank you. This talk was meant for you. Then. <laughs> it was. I really feel it was because right now I'm doing my PhD and it's on scientism, C.S. Lewis's response to scientism. And um, one thing I'm seeing uh, from what you mentioned about Averroes, and what happened with Islam uh, is that the moment you deny causality, you deny logos. And I'm um, meaning that the moment you precisely deny the cause effect relationship happening out there in the world, then things go, things go south. Um, and I'm seeing this also with, for instance, the COVID uh, crisis that the moment people are not very clear on what exactly is the cause, of COVID or of poverty or of whatever, and we rely on uh, these uh, prophets or whoever you, you may want to call them to tell us what's really causing uh, the problems in the world and they're just giving us lies, then we, we, we're just going deeper and deeper into the problem. So I don't know, is that just my perception of it or is it that any philosophy that doesn't have a good system of causality is just is just bad, bad news? Right, right. That's you're exactly right. That's what happened in Islam. Uh, Islam was, uh, and I, I experienced this firsthand, okay, because I've been to Iran a number of times over the uh, past couple of years. I have a friend there who's always wants to get me into a debate with one of the mullahs in Iran. So we're, you know, uh, he's, we're in Mashhad uh, at a conference, and he brings his favorite uh, mullah from Qom. And he says, we're going to have a debate about faith and reason. So good, okay. So I start off, I think I'm in Mashhad, I'm impressed, it's the Silk Road. Uh, this is where the wheel was invented. So I'll talk about the invention of the wheel is the beginning of Logos, you know, the domestication of the horse, the invention of the wheel. So I'm in the middle of this thing and he interrupts me and says, no, that's wrong. I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm trying to see, you know, like the dog was domesticated and at a certain point it was domesticated. And I think you could explain it by, you know, they were eating by the fire and they threw bones out. The dogs would come and gradually, you know, so on and so forth. He said, no, that's wrong. 
I said, well, what's, what's right then? He said, well, a prophet taught man how to build the wheel. I said, a prophet? I said, I'm talking about 13,000 years uh, BC. Uh, the prophet didn't arrive until 15,000 years later. What are you talking about? He said, I said, how do you know this? And he said, well, it's in the Hadith. Well, I, I said, look, I, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I don't accept the Quran as uh, canonical. I'm certainly not going to accept the Hadith as canonical. Is that the best you can do? Well, it was because there's no secondary causality for a Muslim. Everything is willed by God directly yeah. and everything is in the Quran. Now, this is, this is interesting because the Quran is a book and what you have here is the, the, the Arabs living off in the middle of the desert and suddenly they're hearing rumors about Christianity, but Christ, the Bible has not been translated into um, Arabic yet. So they're hearing stories that they don't quite understand. And I think what they're hearing is a story about Logos, but Logos is too abstract for an Arab. Ar the Arabs don't have the vocabulary to understand an abstract term like Logos. So they say, oh, it's a book. So the book is eternal. And that book is in heaven. That actual book is in heaven. And the angel Gabriel memorized the book and he came down and whispered it into the ear word for word for Mo uh, to Muhammad. This is all a kind of simplistic reduction of the sophistication of Logos by a, a people who are, are basically not sophisticated enough to deal with the philosophical background that Christianity had to absorb. That's what it was. And so it's never worked. It's never worked. And I'm talking to people who are uh, Persians and they were conquered by the Arabs and that never worked either because they're still at war with each other and Shia Islam is different than that. And they have no way to adjudicate their differences because Islam spread by the sword. That was the, the Ayatollah Shahru told me that when I met with him. You know, and then he started ranting about the, uh, I don't want to use that word, but I mean, he was unhappy about the Saudis. It's never worked because they, they simply did not have the Logos that would allow them to adjudicate these differences. So God does everything. God does everything. He wills everything. And there's no secondary causality. But then as Maimonides said, well, God is like the caliph. And that's exactly right. God is an exalted caliph in Islam. And the caliph goes out for an afternoon ride and he gets to the palace uh, gate and he doesn't know whether he's going to go right or left. That's the God you pray to. It is totally, will, it's will and it's no reason. And as a result, there's no uh, uh, basis for science. And as a result, uh, the West conquered Islam. Okay, so now I'm dealing with, with uh, women. You go over there, you give a talk. I'm talking about sex. Uh, the women are, feminism is kind of rampant there in a certain way. So the women are all becoming nuclear physicists. So they go to Western universities, they study nuclear physics, and they've got the Koran, and they got nuclear physics, and nothing in between. Well, that's not going to tell you how to run your life. And that's precisely the problem. And if you've got Islamic students at Strathmore, you can help them with that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Because I'm also seeing, therefore, 
secondary causality means responsibility, that God doesn't do everything, that you are, are also responsible as a secondary cause. And, and, and so if you don't have that idea of causality, then um, you just leave everything up to God and you don't take any personal responsibility. Right, right. that's exactly right. So what happened after I left uh, this, uh, this man, uh, they took me to a, an enzyme factory in, in Mashhad. And so the enzyme factory, uh, the man, it's a biologist from the university and an entrepreneur. They got together and now they produce enzymes and they're producing medicine. So at this point, I didn't get the chance to see him again, but I would have asked the, uh, the uh, mullah, uh, did a prophet tell these people how to build the enzyme factory in Mashhad? I don't think so. What it was a biologist. What does a biologist do? He understands the logos in nature. There is an order in nature that you can discern by your mind because you are a creature of logos and you can abstract principles from that and you can create medicine and you can build, build a factory and so on and so forth. It contradicted. I, it's a shame I didn't get a chance to answer that question, but it goes right to the heart of causality, secondary causality where they are operating uh, intellectually from a principle of secondary causality that their religion denies. That's, that's a problem. The big problem, you don't have that problem. You do not have that problem because you're Catholic and you have a coherent view of the universe. They've got a big problem there, big problem there. And the problem is that the United States basically Israel first American foreign policy is creating a situation where they they're constantly on war footing and they can't resolve the problem intellectually that's but you don't have that problem okay we have to really move on um Dr. Jones if I may interject if someone were to say that chemistry came up in the Islamic world or you know disciplines such as algebra or or algorithms are in this scientific wouldn't that disprove what you're saying well, the problem is you're always going to get some type of ideology whenever you study science. Mm. And so the classic example is biology. Guess what you learn when you study biology? Guess what you become when you study biology? Do you learn about birds and bees and stuff like that? You, know, you become a Darwinist. And Darwin is an alien ideology which is imposed on biology. So you're got, if you, even if you go into the sciences, you're going to have to deal with that fact. Or from a deeper level, I mean, I know a guy who was a, a, a physicist. He's, a physicist is just wasting time now. They, they got these big atom smashers. It's, got all, it's all predicated on things that are not really uh, valid. And so physics is stalled. And so he just got out and went into Wall Street. It's a classic example. You know, I'll make some money. Science doesn't make any sense anymore. I'll go and make some money. So you're going to deal with it even in science. And you're going to have to be probably even more sophisticated if you deal with it in science, because that's the first chapter I dealt with in Logos Rising deals with Darwinism and atheism. So you have to deal with it no matter what you study. Okay, Kanyiri, let me allow you to ask your question. Okay, thanks, Bob. Yes, <clears throat> for June, my question is, it's a bit twofold. Yeah, I've, I've, I've acted with a bit of Foucault's work and um, he, he, he speaks about how language has been used to control, especially in his, his, his books or history of sexuality. 
and one of the effects of that has become how the union become one of the most illiberal places to discuss ideas because of purely because of what he calls uh, not he calls but what someone has, has called the language orthodoxy of the left but then again um because of Foucault he we get an appreciation of the measures that a lot of countries are taking with regards to COVID. Um, and one of his lectures before he died was on biopolitics, whereby now uh, the means or rather how natural life starts becoming cultured into the mechanisms of, of, uh, of political power and political decisions. So my question would be for a student, how do you learn to, not to compromise, but rather to to come to terms with both 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 facets of someone's um, contribution to any any discourse of the sort. Yeah, uh, Foucault's a good example. His his father was a medical doctor. Uh, his father represented science and medicine to him, uh, and he he hated his father and he hated science and he hated medicine, and he was smart enough to understand that they are they are forms of control. And now we're living in an era of exactly uh, what he predicted. But uh, that doesn't mean that Foucault was right. I mean, in terms of what he was, his relationship with his father led him then to become a homosexual. Uh, and once he became a homosexual, he became at war with Logos. Uh, that is war, war with Logos in a very personal way. And so he eventually then took the idea of social control. It's right, you're right, it is. There are forms of social control, but he would say that morality was a form of social control and the, opposite, the exact opposite is the truth. Morality is practical reason. You are a rational creature. The only way you are free is by being rational. And this, in a sense, Foucault is a symptom rather than uh, uh, a, an explicator of, of what happened because, and that's precisely what I wrote about in my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. He was uh, abandoned reason when he became a homosexual. He was hardened in that. He had the misfortune of uh, being hired by Berkeley um, in the 1970s, which is when the homosexual movement was uh, rising in places like San Francisco. He was introduced to the gay bathhouses of San Francisco and he spent his nights in bathhouses and his days uh, lecturing at uh, Berkeley. Well, you can't do, you can do that for a little bit, but uh, you're not going to get a clear understanding of what's going on. And uh, he, as a result, uh, he died doing what he loved. He died of AIDS in 1984. But before he did that, his main contribution, uh, I think, was to completely revise uh, what you would call the left, the politics of the left. And he did that by sexualizing. So there's a, a famous uh, incident in his biography where he and a bunch of his friends went to Death Valley, which is in California, uh, east of uh, San Francisco. And uh, they took LSD and he had this epiphany uh, and the epiphany uh, uh, has been called uh, his pact with the devil. Uh, at this point, the CIA was involved, became involved, interested in Foucault's work, and he came up with the perfect solution to the problem of left and right by this kind of marriage of capitalism and sexual liberation and cutting the whole economic uh, sphere out of it. So he said, basically, uh, you give us unlimited sexual liberation and we won't ask for a raise. That is the de facto operating system of the West now. 
It's, it was called the new left at a certain point in history. That's what's going on uh, right now. And Foucault is responsible for it. So the question is, how do you deal with Foucault? Uh, I dealt with this in my book, Degenerate Moderns, okay? Either you, when I had to deal with uh, modern thinkers trying to do this, this is like 30 some years ago, trying to deal with people like Sartre, uh, predecessor of Foucault. How do you deal with people like this? Uh, you have two choices in life. You can either subordinate your desires to the truth, or you can subordinate the truth to your desires. If you subordinate the truth to your desires, which is what Foucault did, then your desires are the most important thing that we need to know about your philosophy. And that's precisely why the biography becomes important. That's why dealing with people like this, you have to do research into the biography. And then you find out what's really going on. And then you have the best explication of the thought of a thinker like Foucault, who's basically animosity towards science, biology, medicine, the whole thing, I think is traceable to his unfortunate relationship with his father, which in turn led to his homosexuality. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we are running out of time. Maybe as a parting shot, Dr. Jones. Um, in, in Africa, let's go back to the question of Africa. Would you, what would you say, what are the lessons we can draw from this discussion for African universities? How can we be the vehicle of logos in our, in our universities? Uh, because it looks like we are despairing. It's like we cannot do much in terms of political change, any change after all. So what can we do maybe as an institution of the university, but also personally as individuals? Well, the university, to the extent that you have any power in the university, you are going to have to separate yourself from the, the standards of the Western university. You have to simply stop allowing them to establish the categories uh, which control your life. You have to do that. It's the same thing with uh, the sexuality at this point. You've got a group of, and the West is trying to turn, convert uh, East Africa to uh, basically accepting homosexual behavior. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. The whole, the whole point of the Ugandan martyrs is that they resisted the homosexual advances of the king, would rather die than have that happen. That is, the, in many ways, that is to East Africa what Our Lady of Guadalupe is to Mexico. It's like the form of East Africa, so it's never going to work. And I think that that's going to stop, you know, eventually. They may kill the president if he doesn't go along. I think that's what happened to Magafuli with the COVID regulations. But you have to establish intellectual independence from the West. And in order to do that, you have to have roots in the tradition of Logos. You have to go back and say, this is, this is the mainstream of human history. This is what human history is about. It's the development of Logos. You guys went off the rails a while back. We are going back to the roots and we are pursuing that uh, in, this, in this way. That means in terms of uh, uh, accreditation, you're gonna have trouble because they will simply not uh, want to accredit your university if you don't go along with their agenda. So there's gonna be struggle uh, ahead uh, along this road, but there's no choice in the matter. If you go along with the Western University, you will be destroyed. You will be destroyed. You're, you're, the next generation will be uh, sexually corrupted. You will end up being 
sex robots and wage slaves. And that's all you'll be because that's all they're turning out at the university again. So the main criterion, the main issue is intellectual liberation from the uh, corrupt university of the West. And if they try and say, we won't give you cred accreditation if you go this way, you have to say, well, sorry, sorry, we're not gonna go along with it. Okay, thank you. Justin, do we, how much time do we have? Maybe I should ask the same to Dr. We have Jones. like 15 minutes. Ah, 15 minutes or so. Okay, I would rather the people who raise their hands ask first. And then if there are none, I can go read from the chat. So is there anyone so that we have some direct engagement? Anyone else? I see both the questions on the chat. All right, fine. If there's no one, then I will, I will just read. So Dr. Jones, there's a question here that asks, despair is also a denial of causality, of our own causative power and that of God. In your experience, is there a social despair in African countries a despair about our capacity to change the larger political landscape? And what is the relationship between logos and hope? Hope is a theological virtue. Faith, hope, and charity. We now have access, di direct access to the logos through Jesus Christ, who became man. And this is the source of our hope. Our hope is in the Lord. Uh, but we need to explain that to people. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Lord is the Lord of human history. And I tried to explain to you that the mechanism of human history is what Hegel called the cunning of reason, where God allows evil uh, to bring about good in exactly in the way that he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery. Is, does that resonate with, with, uh, with you folk? Does that resonate with Africa? You were sold into slavery, okay? Uh, there was a good that came from that, uh, that evil experience, and the good was Christianity. This was the uh, you know, same thing with Latin America. You know, you were conquered by these people, and one, is, one guy is a conquistador, and the other guy is a Franciscan priest. And that's the way God moves in history, because you had an evil empire like the Aztecs in Mexico that had to be conquered militarily. And so you were conquered, but then God brought good out of that evil. This is the type of thing that we're seeing that you have to see. You have to keep this in mind as the cause, not the cause of your hope, but reason to have hope that God is in charge of human history. And that the Logos is in many ways what St. Paul said, it's strong when it's weak. So we have a moment of Logos now, of Logos rising that is totally improbable. So let me give you one example. Uh, I wrote the book, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation of Political Control, uh, 25 years ago. And everybody thought I was crazy. Once again, thought I was crazy. And then suddenly a group of 20 year olds woke up to the fact, this is 2019, that they were completely addicted to pornography and masturbation and they were slaves of their passion and all I had to say was sexual liberation is a form of control. And they realized that I was right. That someone finally understood what was going on. Now that is the movement of Logos in human history. So they organized a boycott of pornography and then the Jews got upset and called them anti-Semites because they weren't watching pornography and so on and so forth. But that consciousness emerged out of moral defeat. See what I'm saying? the moral defeat enabled, made them helpless. 
And when they were totally helpless, when they realized they had no control over their lives, that they were addicted, that was the beginning of recovery. So that's the same thing here. You know, you're recovering from, from okay, you went from slavery, okay, to neo-imperialism, which is what you have now. And that whole rail era of, uh, you know, independence proved to be a, a, a cruel joke uh, when basically uh, Congo is the best example when the Western powers go through this big thing, Belgium goes through this big rigmarole saying you're independent now. And the first thing they do is kill Patrice Lumumba so that they can get access to the, the mineral rights, the minerals in, in, in the Congo. Now, Logos, now is the moment of Logos, emerging out of that weakness, understanding the, the course of Logos in human history and acting on it. That's, that's the whole key. Great. There's a hand raised, Bagati, Red Room. Dr. Jones, as the person is still buying time, and this is a personal question. What do you think the vaccine is about? And what is in it? What does it have to do with anything? I think the vaccine was create. Uh, the vaccine is a, a form of control. I think it's uh, the, the, let's back up. What is the COVID about? COVID was, uh, I think it was uh, weaponized in a laboratory in Wuhan, either it escaped or it was deliberately uh, released uh, throughout the world to create a crisis. And the purpose of a crisis is to take control. Uh, the oligarchs take control. Naomi Klein wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine. If you want to know the mechanism of this, she describes it pretty accurately in that book. So you never let a crisis go to waste, as Rahm Emanuel said. This was a worldwide crisis precipitated by the oligarchs to confront what was an uprising against oligarchic rule. It was a manifestation of it would be the Yellow Vest protest in France, Brexit in England, the Trump election in America, and now the agriculture protest in India. There is worldwide dissatisfaction with oligarchic control. We now understand that these people are controlling us for their benefit. They are trying to destroy representative government. And now we are awakening. The first consciousness was we can now do something about it. It started to spread on the internet. And the first reaction was censorship on the internet. Everybody got deplatformed. I got deplatformed. I was selling a lot of books on Amazon. So then suddenly Amazon, which now has monopoly on book sales, uh, expels me. Uh, and so that uh, consciousness was now going to be crushed by a new weapon, and the new weapon was COVID. And now the vaccines are being, Gates is becoming involved with vaccines, and they're trying to get people to get vaccinated. And what we're realizing now here is that the vaccine has horrendous side effects, and it may very well compromise your immune system. And all of this news is being suppressed. Uh, the Africans, Kenyan bishops said, don't get vaccinated. I, as I remember, this is what uh, I was told, uh, because the vaccination, there was a mass sterilization campaign. Same thing happened in India. People got sick from the vaccines, uh, better off never taking them. That's my understanding of COVID. It's the use of science as a weapon uh, to destroy culture across the world, uh, destroy representative government, and to enslave us all. Uh, to the scientists. Great. There's another question from the chat here. If the Islam or Arab world are unsophisticated, why is the economy of the Middle Eastern world doing so well? 
consider their airlines such as Emirates, Qatar, etc. Islam is also quite serious in those countries compared to Christianity. If you're asking me why the uh, why they have money in uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, it's because they have oil. It's very simple. And oil became very important in the 20th century, and they made a ton of money with their oil. Okay, now what do you, what do you do with money? Is money wealth? No, money is a medium of exchange. It's a store of value and so on and so forth. You have to do something with money. And I think that's where we're seeing the problems in the Islamic world. What are you doing? Uh, I mean, uh, and I, as I said already, I think there's a huge difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia. A huge difference is the difference between a high sophisticated culture and a, an agricultural culture that became rich overnight because of oil, because the price of oil skyrocketed. So I think if you look closely at it, you'll see that there are problems. That uh, the, the, what I'm trying to say here is that money is not wealth. And I'm trying to say that labor is the source of all value. And even if you've got a lot of money, you have to put it to work. If you don't put it to work properly, it disappears. And that's precisely what's happening at Saudi Arabia. So are they putting it to use wisely? Well, uh, ask them about their military expenditures. They, a lot of that money goes to buying sophisticated weapons from the United States because Saudi Arabia is a client state of the United States. And they buy things like the, the uh, missile shield, uh, which doesn't work. And they buy jets with which they can't fly and they have no army. And so the Houthi in Yemen are basically beating them. Uh, they're, they're of primitive, it's a, it's a society that is poor compared to the rich Saudis, but yet they have the people on their side that the Saudis don't, and the Saudis are, are, are lose, losing this battle. So they're a classic example of what I would say is uh, money just passing through your hands and not creating wealth. All right. I, I think uh, the questions are exhausted. Um, Good. I so think, am I. Yeah. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Dr. Jones. We appreciate tremendously. Uh, I don't know what else we can do to say thank you. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll try and read your book. I'll try and make, uh, I don't know how to, to, to publish it. I cannot share it with all these people here present, but uh, guys, get your own copies. Eh? <laughs> You can also order for one. I just think it will take two months or so. The book is available at culture, uh, culturewars.com. You can go to, okay. uh, or fidelitypress.org. You can go there and you can buy a copy of the book. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was told it ends at five and I've seen that I have two minutes. Let me sneak in one more question. I told you I have a hundred questions, but just uh, indulge me in this one. Um, yeah, you have mentioned the logos with reference to uh, academia, and also with reference to the world of work. And uh, uh, there's, we have, we have a saint who you can say the inspiration behind Strathmore, Saint Jose Maria Escriva, who used to talk a lot about work and, and what he called its sanctification. And I was just curious uh, if uh, he was onto something here because he was very keen on the ordinary man and how he can be lifted out of poverty through work, precisely. Not so much through knowledge but it's through work so my question work. has to do with this connection yeah 
you yeah, want... work work is applied knowledge and the mm. more knowledge you have the more the better you can work and so that that that's that's the way that works but uh yeah i mean i was at uh i was at uh, strathmore i spoke at strathmore to, mm. years ago uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna be frank with you okay uh so when when i spoke at uh, strathmore academy i was also supposed to speak at strathmore university at that time but there was a a dean there who should have known that I was there before, but didn't, and looks me up on the internet and realizes the internet has nothing but bad things to say about me. So I didn't get invited. I didn't get invited to speak. Uh, specifically, uh, I was looked up on the ADL website, which is the first thing that will come up when you Google my name. And the ADL is the Anti-Defamation League. The Jews uh, don't like me. I know this comes as a surprise to some people, but it's because I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. They don't like that book. This, and so the problem here is uh, who gave uh, Jews veto power over ca whether Catholics can associate with other Catholics? This is ridiculous. I'm sorry, but this is ex exactly the example of that kind of neo-colonial attitude on the part of Africans who are always going to someplace in America or Europe to make sure that they're thinking the right thoughts. This is, this is not, uh, and it's also anti-Catholic. We have a universal institution. We have a, a, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church created the university, and we don't need uh, uh, thought police telling us who we're allowed to associate with. So I, again, I thank you for having me here today. I thank you for having me at the uh, Strathmore Academy. I thought we had a great meeting of the minds there that time. And I would really like to come back again and do it again, uh, inshallah, as, as, uh, our, as our Muslim friends say, and come back. And I'd like to, I think that uh, you should consider using Logos Rising as a textbook. If, if I was able to talk about metaphysics to those students, I think that uh, at that time, you were skeptical. I remember you think, telling me yeah. it's not going to work, but it did work, and I think it can work. Okay, now finally, we have to say thank you, and happy Easter in advance, Dr. Jones. We appreciate it highly. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, guys, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.